Okay. Close enough. We're good. We're good. I'll, what I always have to do when we first start recording is I have to like delete a second or a half of a second from someone's track to make it mm -hmm. all line up. But it pretty much lines up. You well hydrated? No. You getting there? Nope. <laughs> I'm excited about this this section, uh, the tale of Inspector Grass, because we finally get like that good old Lovecraftian history of the world nonsense. I thought you were going to say racism. <laughs> no, well, that, but also the history of the world, like the whole, this is our first example. This is the first time Lovecraft really goes all in on like, all right, cracks his fingers and like, here's the history of our planet and why we're all screwed. Yeah, uh, I have so many things to say. Yeah? Specifically about the bad rep that Voodoo gets in this section. Oh, 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 oh mm, 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 well, good. <laughs> Uh, should we kick it off then? I'm Phil. And I'm Willow. And it's, it's Del, Del Toro, Toro time. time. It's Del Toro time. We are back with the, with the, uh, the Dark Descent. David G. Hartwell, we're on part two of... Uh, Call of Cthulhu. I was reading about Cthulhu and how H.P. Lovecraft multiple times had to explain to people how to pronounce it. And apparently, at one point, somebody did say Cthulhu to him, and he got irate because it's like the it's like the one way you're not supposed to pronounce it. And then I'm like, Bru then don't write it as Cthulhu. <laughs> you literally wrote it that way, you fool. But in any case, smack him for every I, reason. If I smacked his head now, it would crumble into dust like a mummy head. Probably already has dust. Let's be real here. It probably is dust. It was probably dust before he died. Let's be real. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Old old dust head Lovecraft. You know, you like to think, man, if only he were around today. But you know what? There are so many toxic people in sci-fi fantasy that he would just, his viewpoints would just have complete support. Given the today's current political climate, yeah. <laughs> okay. So one of the, one of the more famous lovecraft editors and commenters and scholars is this guy robert m price and i used to subscribe to two of his podcasts i own multiple robert m price books i used to think the guy was just the bee's knees like i was he was he's funny he's smart he knows his lovecraft he's super like just super witty and clever and i've heard him on many podcasts and he's uh he's also like a, a religious scholar and an atheist and I used to just be like, all right, this guy's on the ball. And then, oh boy, the stuff that started pouring out of his old mouth. Like, he hit this point where suddenly he was like, I'm not embarrassed to let people know what I think anymore. Garble, vlargle, garble, vlargle, vlargle. And it all poured out. And I was like, you're literally the worst. And then he spoke at one of the Lovecraft cons. And people were like, oh, oh no. And then he wrote the introduction for a for a for a weird fiction collection that was on the verge of being printed until people read the introduction and were like, "Why are you going off on trans people?" And people finally realized that Robert M. Price was was kind of kind of a toxic human being. See, you gotta and, uh, you gotta like take a step back from the art you're consuming and not let it consume you. Also, just don't be a garbage person. Don't be a garbage person, Robert M. Price. And uh, I think it's a little too late, though, because he just doubles down on all of his like stuff like 
they shouldn't change the name of this football team from this racist thing, because who cares? Clearly enough people care to get it changed. When when you say that Lovecraft had toxic viewpoints and beliefs, that is totally true. But he also didn't have much of a platform. So the only reason we know about many of those beliefs is because he, he wrote them down for later consumption. But there are people with major platforms who are doing legitimate damage just by continuing to spout their horrible beliefs and their horrible viewpoints. And I'm like, yikes, yikes, yikes. I'm just glad that Lovecraft is dead and does not have Twitter. <laughs> uh. But speaking of, and and, and I, I posted about Lovecraft the other day, and one of, my, one of my friends was like, yeah, he was a terrible writer. There's some, and I was like, you know what? I don't think he was a terrible writer. I think Lovecraft, I think Call of Cthulhu is a good a good bit of writing. It's got some evocative passages, but as you said up top, this is the section where things get start getting hairy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got some. He's got some opinions about some opinions. <laughs> uh, but he. But I'm he also gonna, writes. I'm gonna just place a place a block down. A yeah. block. I can't think of the word I'm looking for. We're gonna say Inuit. Okay. We're just. We're yeah, gonna say Inuit. Yeah. We're not going to use the he, other word. Although he does spell the other word very creatively. Very French. <laughs> yeah, and he mis he spells it two different ways, like within the same like story. I was like, are you just trying to be like? Are you trying to be that way? I do. I do. I will say this about his reference to other cultures is <laughs> and this is the most I will give him is that he does clearly say that the examples he's giving are of offshoots of this culture that within the culture stand as particularly outrageous like the inuit people he describes are like an offshoot cult within that culture so as as degenerate as his own outlook may be on other cultures at least he makes the concession that these people are outstanding within their own cultures does that even matter I mean, you know, it's a little something. Is it? <laughs> it's something. In any case, part two, the tale of Inspector Legrasse. Quick catch up. Um, Thurston, great uncle dies. A uh, great uncle angel dies. Uh, this guy was visited by a kid named Wilcox who did a, a bas-relief of a thing called Cthulhu. Uh, there's reference to Cthulhu cult. Poets had dreams. How old was Wilcox? I think he's in his 20s. I think he was supposed to be like a young guy. So he's like my age. Maybe a little bit older. Like, I, I think he, well, he lives with his family, but who knows what that means. Can uh, you imagine if, like, I came up to, like, some famous professor with a piece, with a sculpture I made in this day and age and was like, tell me about this. Long as you were wearing a mask. Long as you were wearing a mask. So Wilcox and all these people have been having these dreams, and all of a sudden the dreams stopped. But also... Within this box of stuff from Professor Angel was uh, a, a manuscript of, a, of, of another story. This guy, uh, the story of Angel's interactions with a guy named Lagrasse. And we find out that there is a reason he was so taken by this bas-relief that Wilcox had sculpted. So what's the story here, Willow? Uh, there's a convention. Yes. A sweet anime convention. No, a I sweet wish. anime convention. This is a convention from way back in 1908, by the way. This is a flashback. I yes. think this is better than a flashback, though. It's more like telling as if it's happening at this moment. Yeah, this story is a series of nested narratives, by the mm -hmm. way. And this is where things start getting particularly nested. In fact, 
In uh, the book I Am Providence, the, uh, the biography of H.P. Lovecraft by, uh, by S.T. Joshi, he talks about the nested narrative. And I'm going to show you this, this, this little chart he did. This is a chart of the nested narratives of, of the Call of Cthulhu and just yeah. how they work. Like they are multiple and many and a little confusing, but they, they do work. Like they're, they're smoothly done enough. Mm-hmm. We're getting into, we have so Thurston is telling the story, and then he lets Angel take over by telling a story about this archaeological convention mm-hmm. from 1908. Because what happened at this convention? So basically, they're all talking, and after the main like talks, mm-hmm. uh, people are allowed to approach the professors and archaeologists and ask questions. And one particular person comes up with this creepy statue little figurine thing and yeah. his name is well his name isn't inspector i wish it was <laughs> uh his name is lagrasse and he's mm-hmm. an inspector for the police department from new orleans yeah uh this is unusual because lovecraft rarely ventures into the american south so taking this into louisiana into a uh into a part of the country that he wasn't really that familiar with is a is is a bit of a departure for him but it also starts making this story seem a bit more a bit more global than just the narrative had had like now we're like oh wow this really is something that's starting to like that is spread out so yeah so what's lagrasse's tale basically lagrasse and 19 other men were called because of disturbance there was a and i use this term against my better judgment swamps i think you can i think you can say there's a reports of what is assumed to be voodoo practitioners yes. by the locals but we find out it's not actually voodoo no because voodoo isn't like that right there's a bunch of it's really interesting there's like a bunch of squatters like uh people who live kind of out in this wooded area who are transients and and they like kind of have a shanty town and they are the ones who report like there's something going on in the deeper in the woods and we live a pretty rough life and it's kind of freaking us out so uh could and we think that there's something dangerous going on uh so that's why the cops are involved. so so while it is racially awkward that it is referred to as voodoo it is made clear that this is not actual voodoo is it yes because it's cthulhu related and cthulhu has nothing to do with that's voodoo. fair still makes me upset I was really focused on my anger towards how voodoo is described in this. So they talk about how there's supposedly a monster. This is definitely racially charged. It, it's clearly said this re- the region now entered by the police is one traditionally evil was one of traditionally evil reputes, substantially unknown and untraversed by white men. Yes, yes, there is a there is a a huge disconnect here. Uh, I find that interesting because. It's, it really plays into that the dark unknown would necessarily be populated by people of color that is so prevalent in pulp fiction and genre fiction in general. Like, this is not where white people would go. This is where people of color would go. Meanwhile, uh, we've seen what white people do for power. Right. Like, well, the, all the cops are white. Yeah. What is and, this? Uh, what is this garbage? They're, they're going to go barge in on what they assume to be just a religious ceremony like at, at at most it would be 
a religious ceremony that they were unfamiliar with, they assume. Yeah. Now, they don't go in guns a-blazing. They are just in, like checking this out because the presumably more white squatters are freaked out by it. I mean, we assume they don't go in guns blazing. This is an unreliable narrator after all. Right. So again, we are getting a story told by a person that's been told this by another person. <laughs> and it gets even deeper than that as we go along. And I think that that's not, I don't think that's accidental. I think Lovecraft wanted us to feel like we're getting so much of this second hand to kind mm -hmm. of kind of leave us questioning like what was actually going on there's yeah there's reports of a of a thing out in the woods this sort of like weird like white blob creature that we don't even know what that even is that that's never cleared up mm -hmm. uh there's also tales of like something with wings dark winged something's out there but again bat winged devils yeah, we don't know what this is. Like, we don't, we get evidence of something, but that's a story that never gets told. Like, we never find out what's going on with this, like, something out in the woods. Shapeless blob. What does Legrasse and his men stumble upon? Only poetry or madness could do justice to the noise heard by Legrasse's men. That's mm -hmm. such a good, good line. It's a... Uh some sort of ritual going on around a bonfire. Mm -hmm. It's not a harmless ritual, though, because the reason the squatters are terrified is because people had been disappearing from their camp, mm -hmm. uh, children, uh, women, men, and oh boy, do they find those bodies. Yeah. They are hung up on scaffolds, their heads down, their bodies mutilated and marred in the midst of this. And on the, uh, in the middle of all of this is a, is a giant plinth upon which is another one of those weird sculptures of this squatting entity. The only thing I can picture, because they said that the thing's hands were on its knees, the only thing I can picture is that meme of SpongeBob saying, I, I'm a head out. That's all I can picture <laughs> when someone says that. So that's all that's I'm seeing right now. That's kind of what it is. And that's kind of the plot of the Call of Cthulhu. We're just waiting for this entity to say, I'm a head out. I, I'm a head out. And then when, when he does, everyone else in the world turns into that SpongeBob meme where he's the chicken mm -hmm. talking, in, talking in weird capitals and lower cases. Can we just turn this into the relating HP Lovecraft stories to current slash past SpongeBob memes? <laughs> All SpongeBob memes are current. I don't know what you're talking about. That's fair. Um, I think the problem I have with this is that you can say something in like, in like a story, in writing in general, you can say something is something is is not something as much as you want. Uh -huh. But in the end, people are going to associate that with the thing that it is not. Oh, yes. Um, which I think is my main problem here, because you can say, oh, well, it's specifically made clear that it's not voodoo. And I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't change the fact that he called it voodoo. Oh, definitely. I, I agree with that point. It's a, it is meant to evoke a, an outsider's concept of what voodoo is mm -hmm. in order to scare us, in order to get us, get us ready to be scared. But then he gives us a reason to be actually like put off, which is there were bodies hanging upside down yeah. and, and this little statue and it's a, it's a smallish statue on top of this giant plinth that that these that these people are presumably worshiping. Yeah. So so then Legrasse and his men start busting busting stuff up. Some of the men fainted first though and had swamp water thrown in their face. That's rough. Yeah. Um so they make the they make the they make the 
the practitioners, the cultists, perhaps, get dressed. They take them down to headquarters and start questioning them and seeing what kind of information that they can get out of these out of these worshippers. Wow, that is a remarkably racist paragraph. Starting with what? Examined at headquarters. Yep. 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 Uh, and what's interesting is he refers to it as a heterogeneous cult, which means that it's comprised of people from different backgrounds. So it's not, he makes it clear this isn't just people from this one area. They've come kind of come from all over. Uh, and in fact, in one adaptation of this story that I either read or saw, uh, it was either a comic or a short film. They use that, they, they really latch on to that to show people of all different ethnicities. Oh, wow. That makes it so much better. It, it goes away to taking away some of the hor- horrificness because it's like there's a bunch of like white people there, too. Oh, OK. Uh, which is to say, like, oh, this isn't just one. The, wait a minute. And, I, and, it, and, it, and it actually makes that like makes the story, if you play into that, sort of come into sharper focus where you're like, wait a minute. This isn't like a voodoo cult. This is there's like white people over here and like there's some black people and some like Latino people. Like, what is this? Like, this is. This isn't one race doing this. This is people who've just sort of been drawn here for some reason. Now, this that doesn't excuse Lovecraft playing into the racist tropes of of what he's describing. But I'm I'm just sort of relating how adapters of this story have have attempted to skirt that issue by just latching onto this one two word description heterogeneous uh, cult. Um, but yes, this is a terrible paragraph. Uh, yeah. refers it refers to them as degraded and ignorant and also uh as creatures yep <laughs> that ain't cool nope howie howie phil that ain't cool oh god is your name phillips it's not my name my name okay. is not phillips it's philip uh, phillips was the last name of his grandfather i thought you were gonna Whipple. say his girlfriend Whipple. So, um, what an unfortunate name. There's a lot of unfortunate things about this family. So, uh, we get a good description here, and I will let our good friend Andrew tell us what's going on. They worshipped, so they said, the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men and who came to the young world out of the sky. Those old ones were gone now inside the earth and under the sea. But their dead bodies had told their secrets in dreams to the first men who formed a cult which had never died. This was that cult, and the prisoners said it had always existed and always would exist, hidden in distant wastes and dark places all over the world, until the time when the great priest Cthulhu from his dark house in the mighty city of Reliah under the waters, should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway. Some day he would call when the stars were ready, and the secret cult would always be waiting to liberate him. Meanwhile, no more must be told. There was a secret which even torture could not extract. Mankind was not absolutely alone among the conscious things of Earth, for shapes came out of the dark to visit the faithful few. But these were not the great old ones. No man had ever seen the old ones. 
the carven idol was great Cthulhu, but none might say whether or not the others were precisely like him. No one could read the old writing now, but things were told by word of mouth. The chanted ritual was not the secret. That was never spoken aloud, only whispered. The chant meant only this. In his house at Reliach, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. So what you just heard was the first real example of Lovecraft's fictional cosmology. And also what kicked off a bunch of people having the wrong idea about what Lovecraft was trying to get by with this story. As Lovecraft said many times since then, the stories that he told were not about these monsters. And they were not about this history that he created for the planet Earth. That wasn't the point. There's no Cthulhu mythos because the the creatures weren't the point. The monsters weren't the story. The story was that we are insignificant. The story was the cosmic was the cosmic fiction, the cosmic horror. He was just using these as tools to get across that we don't matter. That the horror in this story is that there's larger there's larger forces at play. It doesn't matter what you call them. He thought most of these names he came up with were ridiculous and that he didn't flesh them out because they weren't characters. They were just tools he was using to try to get across the fact that that we are just insects under the feet of 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 entities and like concepts just to get across the fact that the horror is if if you were suddenly made to realize how insignificant you were in the universe, you would just succumb to despair. <laughs> And that's cosmic horror. That is what he was trying to go for. Unfortunately, this these paragraphs are what people started latching onto in trying to recreate Lovecraftian quote-unquote fiction. And it gave rise to what August Derleth dubbed the Cthulhu mythos, but August Derleth was a Catholic. And so he tried to he tried to strong arm all these monsters into a like structured mythos of good versus evil. And really just, it all fell apart after this. And unfortunately, a lot of people who came by immediately after this latched on to the idea of a Cthulhu mythos, of, of Cthulhu's a, a water elemental, and Nyarlathotep is a earth elemental, and the great old ones, or the, the, the great ones came about, and they were the good aliens and monsters, and Cthulhu was an evil creature, and there was a great battle for good. And, like, and so for decades, that's what people were writing, and they forgot that the whole point was that there was no order to this. Also, wasn't the entire point that these creatures don't have a concept of good and evil? Yes! There's no good or... We don't know what these, cre what these things want. Yeah. Their, their, their motivations are a mystery if they even have them. Right. They're unknowable. Like, we don't even know what they sound like because they exist on a completely different level of reality than we do. I think the Mountains of Madness does a good job at explaining that. Unfortunately, people latch on to the, to the mythology he establishes in that and go off in a completely other direction. Mountains I think of Madness only is a great story. That's a good story. Yes, it is a very good story. So there's this guy, Castro, that they're interviewing who's kind of filling them in on what's been going on with these with these Cthulhu cultists. The idea is that these great old ones came down out of the stars. They, they landed on Earth. 
Cthulhu was imprisoned in this city called Rillier, which then sunk beneath the, the waves. The cultists are there because even though these creatures are dead, they're not actually dead. They communicate through people's dreams, and they've kept themselves in the consciousness of human beings over the eons. It's these cultists who believe that they are there for when the stars align properly, they're going to use their something to let Cthulhu out of his prison. But again, we're getting all of this through the through the mind of people who only sort of understand anything that's like this cult has existed for so many years that they've kind of made up their own explanations for what's going on. So this is now being told by old Castro. Yes. Um, which is being told by the cross mm-hmm. after having heard the story from the other professor about the Inuits. Yeah. So the, the whole thing with the Inuits was there was another professor at the archeological mm-hmm meeting who had encountered a group of Inuits who were freaked out by this other group of Inuits who had who were worshiping something and they had this bas relief that was very similar to the one that Wilcox created and to the one that Lagrasse brought to this so yeah so that's another like another piece in this puzzle like there's something weird being worshipped by a violent cult over here in Alaska and also over here in Louisiana. And these two groups don't seem to have actually ever intermingled or communicated yeah. with each other. This yes. is all being, this was all written down by uh, Angel. Yes. Which After is now. After having heard it at. Yeah. Which is now being told to us by Thurston. Yes. That is how why. How many layers of that is. And how many layers of degraded narrative is this? Like. And it's and it's starting from a cultist who, by the simple fact that they are in a cult, means they believe they are central and important to the story of these ancient creatures. Mm-hmm. Even though the creatures probably aren't even aware that this cult really exists. Yeah. Like the creatures are just sort of shouting out into the void about themselves. The cultists have latched onto it, and they think, hey, we need to be here and keep our cult secret in order to be ready when the stars align, whatever that means, so that Cthulhu can come out and do something, do, just come out and walk the earth and make everyone like us and also like the winged creatures or something. The the liberated old ones will teach us new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy ourselves. You know, as all ancient the, all-knowing aliens do. And all the world will flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Meanwhile, the cult, by appropriate rights, must keep alive the memory of these ancient ways and shadow forth the prophecy of their return. But again, this is something that the cult thinks they're supposed to do, but we don't think they've actually been told this. No. Right. It's like one person heard something and then was like, I should make a cult. Yes. So the city of Rillier used to be above the water, and that's when, like, the uh, the ancients would the ancient humans would talk to these creatures and then it sunk beneath the waves uh and so we could no longer interact with them directly so 
now all this lore has just been passed down through the generations. There's certain things the cult won't discuss, which is like how big the old ones are. So that'll be important later on. But we see that like reverberations of this cult and this knowledge have have popped up in 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 Egypt and in Europe became the witch cults and in uh, it, it mentions China, which is tied into like the cities of Lemuria and like a lot of like old like legends of like ancient civilizations, but also in the Necronomicon. Uh, and this is, I think, the second mention of the Necronomicon and the quote that is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even death may die, which was first mentioned in the book, the story, The Nameless City. Um, so there's a lot going on here uh, with with love. He's really kind of like bringing in a lot of his old, old storylines and uh, kind of tying stuff together in this story. Um, but this is where Thurston starts kind of putting more and more and more together mm-hmm. into what's going on. And he actually goes and he visits uh, young Wilcox to ask him about the bas relief he created. And I do like that it says that, uh, you know, Wilcox still lives in the Fleur de Lis building. Mm-hmm. And that's a real place. You can go visit in Providence. A hideous uh, Victorian imitation of 17th century Breton architecture. <laughs> and my child, if you look at a picture of the Florida Lee building in, in, I don't have a picture of it here, but if you look at a picture of it, the Florida Lee building, which is still standing as it looks today, it is a bazonkers looking building. I'm going to it. Is, it is colorful and looks unlike anything else in the area. It's covered in weird bas-reliefs uh, and it is a perfect setting for a deranged artist to be living in and connecting with with the old ones. I'm looking at it. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, yes. that was an apt description. Yep, it is hideous. Uh, <laughs> I love it though. I love yeah. it. Um It's hideous in a good way. He mentions that Wilcox is creating uh clay sculptures that Will one day mirror in marble those nightmares and fantasies which Arthur Macon evokes in prose and Clark Ashton Smith makes visible in verse and painting. And that's really uh, Lovecraft giving a shout out to Arthur Macon, who's one of his favorite writers and one of my, like, and who wrote just some great weird fiction about the fair folk and the fae and uh, Clark Ashton Smith, who is one of Lovecraft's friends and contemporaries and who was a poet and also wrote just like a hundred great shorts, weird short stories about these other cities that listeners, if you get a chance to read, I don't know if Clark Ashton Smith is in our collection, but if you get a chance to read some Clark Ashton Smith, the guy's good and he has a great sense of humor and his characters are fun. And he writes about a lot of like mad wizards and giant creatures. And he created the entity Sathagua, who's one of my favorite uh, Lovecraftian type entities because Sathagua is a toad god. <laughs> He's a giant, giant, giant frog who people seek out to worship and 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 sacrifice to. But whenever, at least in Clark Ashton Smith's version of Sathagua, He's literally just a god who sits there and is lazy and doesn't want to get up and who people think is amazing. But whenever they encounter him, they're like, he was just so like big and t- like didn't move and just looked around and was all. And you're like, this is just a big guy. He's basically Jabba the Hutt. Like he just sits there and like people are like, you're awesome, dude. And he's like, I'm hungry. And they're like, yes, Sathagua. 
It's a great, great entity. Just Clark Ashton fact, Smith. Just the fact that it's a, fro- a toad. It's a giant frog monster, and Clark Ashton Smith knows exactly what he's doing, like in this like creature. Other writers latched onto him and tried to make him scary. Guy wasn't scary. He was awesome. So yeah, so so Wilcox talks more about his dreams, and Thurston starts putting together more. He's like, okay, so there's this cult, and he's like, I don't think Wilcox was lying, but I think maybe Wilcox... He probably read about some of this stuff and like subconsciously remembered it in his dreams and created this. I'm not convinced he's actually dream like I'm not convinced this stuff is true yet. I think there's more pieces of the puzzle I have to put together. Um but I'm starting to suspect that there's more going on here and oh by the way, there's also this report from this like sailor from Norway I've got a little bit further to dig up about this shipwreck and something that may have happened in the South Seas with this boat. And that's where we leave off that part of the story. After our fifth remarkably racist moment. Which is? When he's talking about his uncle's death. Right. Yeah. He flashes back to the uncle's death again. And what do we talk about? You don't have to like actually say the words. Good. uh, Good. I would not. I would what, say, what, is he, what does he go, talk about there, though? He talks about how his uncle was probably murdered by the sailor that bumped into him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's starting to suspect that maybe his uncle learned a little bit too much about this cult and that the cult is desperate to keep itself secret and that the guy who bumped into him may have, may have had some sort of like hidden poison or something that affected his uncle and killed him. But again, his uncle was in his 90s. And was walking on a hill. And was walking on a hill. That was a tale of Inspector the Grass. The Grass is one of those Lovecraft characters who kind of pops up in in fan fiction and in later writings. People like Legrasse because he's he's like one of Lovecraft's few detectives. Like he's a he's like from an almost from a different genre. Like all of a sudden you've got like this like I'm gonna solve the mystery. He doesn't do much. Like he just shows the sculpture to a bunch of people and they're like we don't know what that is but uh he's there and so then that brought that brought the mythos into the the swamps of louisiana and so there's a lot of later writings that take place down and down in the swamps again they all even the modern ones border on racist it's it's uh once you start bringing other people's other people's cultures and beliefs into things you're you're playing with fire my friends you know i never really considered new Lovecraftian fiction to be fan fiction. But I guess that's kind of what it is. <laughs> well, what's interesting about it, and, and you know, and it brings up the, the notion of, like, what's the difference between, like, I am writing in this in this writer's world and fan fiction? Like, what's the difference? One way you can sort of separate it is if the writing depends on the reader already having a strong emotional investment and knowing who every character is, that's fan fiction. Okay. Because you're expecting mostly fan... It's, it's not a derogatory term. It's just... We're expecting only really fans to to get it, to yeah. to be on board with it. So we don't have to set up the world. We don't have to you're you're already you're already ready to 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 be involved. If it takes pains to establish the world, uh, create its own milieu, then it still could be fan fiction, but it's being written for a broader audience. And mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of these writers were doing. Plus, Lovecraft was like personally was like, Oh no! Please play in my world. Like writers would write, they could be. Can I write 
are you cool with me writing a, like a story that uses like Nyarlathotep or whoever? And be like, please do. I'd be totally interested in seeing what you come up with. And he and Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard, who were kind of considered like the three like like there were like there were the, the kind of the ghostly trio in this world. If you read Robert E. Smith, uh, I mean, if you read if you read Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard in Lovecraft from around this time, you're like, oh wow, they were just like trading trading characters and making inside jokes about each other's writing and kind of there were just like robert e like conan the barbarian would go out and he would encounter some of these creatures he would encounter sathagua he would encounter these like ancient entities out in his world and so they yeah they 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 they, they, they gave permission to write fiction in their world so you know what's uh, not fair what that these these men aren't just black and white that you can't say that they're bad, that they're just bad people. <laughs> it's not fair. I mean, you can, you can, if you yeah. want to. I think that's one of the, that's, that's what makes life really hard. I think at times is just when you think you figured someone out, there's like a part of them that you're like, but then there's this either for good or for bad, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a sign of like maturity that, that you have that conflict. I mean, I would never want to associate with them, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, people aren't black and white, and there are probably some good things about some pretty terrible people. At that least, doesn't I mean, mean I... I'm going to necessarily always acknowledge those things, because <laughs> sometimes it doesn't matter in the end. Sometimes you can have a really good trait, but still be an absolutely horrendous person. Yup. You could be the greatest writer in the world and still a POS, and mm-hmm. that's enough for me to say I don't want to interact with your writing, like however, or your career. Like, and I don't want anyone to take away from this that I think anyone needs to read or interact with any of these writings if mm-hmm. if they don't want to. I don't. I honestly do not believe there is any piece of art that you have to engage with in this world if yeah. it makes you uncomfortable. Let it. There's so much great writing in this world by people who aren't this problematic that go and ex- absorb that. If you want to absorb Lovecraftian esque writing, but you are so uncomfortable with supporting this horrible racist, there are plenty of authors of different backgrounds that are using his writing. Yeah, and like we said in the last episode, we will be recommending some of those people uh, mm-hmm. if you're looking for. If you're looking for less problematic and more modern and people who are taking what Lovecraft started and running off in much better directions with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, there's, I mean, this is there, you can have a million conversations about this Yeah, and uh, it, you don't have it, to interact with art that demonizes and, and insults your background or your religion or your beliefs. There yeah. are no obligations for you to do that. Yep. Uh, we are doing this because it's in a book and I happen to like this story. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that this story has its positives and it has its negatives. Yeah. Um, and I, it's a seminal story because it did kick off. It kicked off a lot of stuff. But again, if you're like, I don't want to read Lovecraft, then don't. Do mm-hmm. not. Uh, or go to Tor.com and read their Lovecraft reread um, for years now. Uh, tour.com has been publishing almost weekly, not weekly, but like very, very, very cu- cur- like regular updates on Lovecraft by Ruthanna Emrys and Anne M. Pillsworth, uh, 
to two writers, two professional writers, two amazing writers who started off covering the stories of Lovecraft. And then they basically did what we did. They started doing Lovecraft's influences and then Lovecraft's like the people who were influenced by Lovecraft. They're still updating. Uh, the last one was August 19th, but they started years ago. And you get perspectives on Lovecraft from, uh, from two writers who represent backgrounds that are not straight, white, cis, male perspectives. Uh, and they're great. And they read Lovecraft and they acknowledge his influence and they dish up, as they say, uh, get their... <laughs> Get their girl cooties all over old Howard's original stories. That's amazing. Can I have that on a shirt? <laughs> so yeah, go to tour.com and look up the Lovecraft reread and you'll get you'll get an earful because and their and their writings are great. And I love them. I love them so much. So uh so that is that is the tale of Inspector the Grass. Uh what is next in the Call of Cthulhu? The Madness from the Sea. The Madness from the Sea. And we are gonna finally get to meet this 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 entity uh face first <laughs> in this in this one uh we're gonna get to see what this cthulhu is all about and this is probably my favorite part of the story i've read madness from the sea more than i've read the full story because i love what ha- this is where things go from creepy and off-putting to genuinely weird mm-hmm. how can you fall into a corner that doesn't exist we'll find out <laughs> and i love it i love you want to freak me out? You tell me a story that has that has impossible geometry. You tell me a story that's like I looked in the, I looked at the shape and my eyes couldn't make sense of where the corners and the sides fit together. That say, to I me looked is at the shape and my eyes fell out. <laughs> <laughs> that's also awesome. Uh, so we'll see you back for what was it called? The horror from the sea, the terror from the sea, the madness, the, the, the madness from the sea. Haven't you read this like a hundred times? I read a lot. Uh, But until then, uh, thank you so much, Andrew, for your reading once again. Again, go to audible.com, search Andrew, T-R-O-T-H, for more of his beautiful readings. We love his readings. We love the man. We do. We love to to watch him sing and dance. Uh, (laughs) Like a puppet on a string he is, just for me. Uh, And uh, I'm Phil. And I'm Willow. And we'll see you when it's It's Del Toro Toro time. time. Bye.